Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On the last episode of Guilt. And I mean, just looking here, I mean, the slope, I'm imagining, okay, if I come here to put a body in, you know, you're going to, it's quite a, it's not like a steep bank you're throwing it off. And it's probably, a body would probably just end up eventually churning up. (laughs) You'd you'd see something eventually, wouldn't you? If someone did go in there and and drown, um, the likelihood that they might actually just never be found. Oh, hi. Hi. It's violence that may disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June, 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Gladbrooks. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. spent a lot of the most recent episodes covering the events that took place in and around the mill. And for obvious reason, those details are crucial in trying to piece together Jim's movements at that time, and whether he ever left the mill or not. But as you'll be well aware, in the previous two days immediately prior to his disappearance, he was also exhibiting some out-of-the-ordinary behaviour. 
and none stands out more so than the apparent meeting Jim was adamant he had to attend on Saturday the 19th of June. To this day, no light has ever been shed on what Jim was doing during this time. When I spoke to Inspector Dave Glossop at the beginning of my investigation, and to be fair, it has been many years since he went over the file, but he told me that the time frame for Jim to have really gone to any meeting was too tight, given the drive across town to where he made his FPOS transaction at the Chinese takeaways and then to get back home. There was no time to do anything else. Dave actually said he made this drive and couldn't get there and back in the time Jim had apparently done it. Naively, I took that for granted and hadn't spent much time on this aspect of the case. But recently, I decided it was time to really take a hard look and I was very surprised to find that when taking into account the time Tracy believes Jim left home, 6pm, the time of the FPOS transaction, 7.27pm, and the time Jim returned back home at 8pm, the time frame wasn't tight. Not at all. There was actually a whopping one hour of Jim's time that is unaccounted for. Because as it turns out, the trip from Jim's home to this location only takes approximately 30 minutes, give or take. And according to Tracy's accounts from that time, Jim was gone for a full two hours. That means there was ample time for Jim to have attended a meeting or do whatever else it was he was doing. This starts to become even more interesting when we consider this time frame when compared to the second time Jim leaves the home on Sunday, when at 5pm he tells Tracy he has to go and stop a crisis and a waste. This is the occasion when Jim is trespassed from the Dominion Road car park, directly adjacent to the Chinese takeaways. Again, he is gone for a full two hours, arriving home at 7pm. But what is more interesting is the time that Jim is sighted in the car park, 6.30pm. Again, there is the same hour and a half period of time between when Jim leaves home and then is next seen. As it takes 30 minutes to drive to the location, we again have an hour of Jim's time when he is unaccounted for. 30 minutes to get there, 30 minutes home, and one hour doing what? Because of my long-held belief that he didn't have time to do anything, I had believed he likely just drove straight to the location and returned home. Well, this is obviously not the case. But deciphering what it was that he was doing is no easy task. But the best place to start is Saturday, the suit hire and the meeting. Before we go any further, let's just recap the timeline of events surrounding this meeting Jim said he had to attend. Saturday, 19th of June, at approximately 9am, Jim tells Tracy that he has to attend a meeting that evening and that they will not be able to go to the Hyatt Hotel for their planned night away. Jim and Tracy have a heated discussion where Jim advises Tracy it might be a good idea if Tracy goes and speaks to her parents. At 10am, Tracy goes to her parents' house and tells them 
that Jim is going to a meeting and not going as planned to the Hyatt. Tracy and her parents return home and unsuccessfully attempt to change Jim's mind about attending this meeting. Jim states that he has given in to Tracy too many times, and this time he's holding his ground. Tracy tells Jim that if the meeting is more important than his family, he should consider moving out. Tracy's mother tells Jim that if this is his decision, then he should tell his son Liam himself. Jim tells Liam that mum and dad may have to live in separate houses. He then proceeds to pack a bag. Tracy's mother June checks on Jim in the bedroom, and seeing how devastated he is, she asks Tracy if this is really what she wants. Tracy says no, and the decision is made that Jim doesn't need to move out. At 1pm, Jim tells Tracy he needs to obtain a suit because his clothes aren't good enough for the meeting he must attend. He leaves for approximately three quarters of an hour. 4.30pm, Jim tells Tracy that he might be a bit fragile the next day. When she asks if he means physically or mentally, he replies physically. At 5pm, Tracy heads out to get some videos for the kids. As she returns home at 6pm, she sees the garage door open. Jim appears from the house dressed in a suit, gets into his car and drives away. One and a half hours later, at 7.27pm, Jim's FPOS card is used at Dragon Spring Takeaways, 105 Dominion Road, Mount Eden. At 8pm, Jim arrives home, and as he walks down the hallway, he states, If you knew what was on my mind, you wouldn't be worried. Family always comes first. Jim tells Tracy that they can still make the planned booking at the Hyatt, but Tracy tells him no, it's been called off. Jim eats his Chinese and goes to bed. So what was this meeting that Jim said he had to attend? That was so important, he cancelled their planned night away and was literally willing to break up their family for. Jim had packed a bag of clothes, and this bag of clothes was actually found in the boot of Jim's car when it was located at the mill on Monday. So this would indicate Jim was indeed serious. So what does the hiring of the suit tell us? Well, it would seem to indicate that whatever this meeting was, Jim felt he needed to dress to impress. So what was going on in Jim's life at this time that he may have felt was so important? Are there clues to this in Jim's actions in the previous days? If you'll recall, Jim had shown serious interest in joining the Freemasons. Let's quickly recap the known timeline of the days Wednesday to Friday, because I believe they are very important. 7am Wednesday the 16th of June. Jim makes a phone call to his best friend Stephen Taylor's father, Colin Taylor, who is a prominent Freemason, stating that he is considering joining the Freemasons and arranges to pick up an application from Colin. At 4pm, Jim calls Tracy to arrange to meet and discuss joining the Masons at home prior to collecting the children. She's to cancel her gym appointment that night. Jim expressed the view that this was very important. 5.30pm, Jim and Tracy meet at home to discuss his plans. 
Tracy was not happy regarding the proposed idea of joining the Masons, but has said she agreed with it in principle if she did not have to participate. Jim wanted to discuss this with Tracy's father, Brian Hughes, to seek his views. At 6pm, Tracy and Jim collect their children and Jim speaks with Brian. At 7pm, Jim drives to Colin's residence and uplifts the application from Shirley Taylor, Colin's wife, and discusses joining the Masons and what it means. The next morning, being Thursday, Jim calls Colin and states that he didn't think it was possible for him to join the Masons anymore. On Wednesday, Jim had made it clear to Tracy that their meetup regarding Jim joining the Masons to him was very important. So what caused this sudden change? One day, dead keen, the next morning, not. Tracy has made it clear that she was in opposition to Jim joining the Masons, but has said she would allow it if she didn't have to be involved. But I understand that this opposition ran much deeper. I've been told that Tracy was in fact vehemently opposed to this possibility. And reading between the lines, it's clear that that night a heated discussion took place. By the next morning, being Thursday, Jim had given in and called Colin to say he couldn't join. Ultimately, it was from this point onwards that Jim's behaviour appeared to change into something that presented as odd. Prior to this day, Tracy had only described him as seeming a bit distracted when she returned home from overseas a few weeks earlier. And we'll get to the issue of why he may have been distracted during this time in an upcoming episode, because I believe I can explain this. But the key point I'm making now is that this Wednesday night through Thursday appears to be some kind of tipping point. We don't have any timeline of events from Thursday, but we can assume it was a stressful time for Jim and that he hadn't been sleeping well due to descriptions of him from after this time. On Friday, multiple staff members noted that Jim looked scruffy, which was very unusual as Jim is usually well kept. I've spoken to one of these employees and he's confirmed that Jim definitely wasn't his usual well-presented self. His shirt was untucked, his hair was messy and he looked generally dishevelled. But there is also another key moment here. Before Jim leaves work on Friday, one of the same staff members describes Jim's mood during an end-of-day meeting as being the most upbeat he'd ever seen Jim. And it was so odd, he made a mental note of it at the time. Yet that night, Jim and Tracy have a meal at Tracy's parents, where they describe him to be in a strange mood and he wants to go home early. A far cry from the upbeat Jim described by the mill employees. The following day, being Saturday, he has a catch-up with Stephen who describes him as looking tired and not making much sense. After Stephen leaves that morning, he tells Tracy he has to go to the meeting, and everything unfolds from there. So what was this apparent meeting on Saturday? If Jim had called Colin to say he wouldn't be able to join the Masons anymore, then surely this couldn't be a Freemason-related meeting. Or could it? 
Is it possible that Jim had defied Tracy's wishes and decided to attend a meeting anyway? And how does a suit hire fit into this? Interestingly, only 1,300 metres down the road from the two locations Jim was known to have visited on these trips was a Freemason lodge, the Eden Lodge. To be fair, there are lodges throughout Auckland, but could Jim have been attending a meeting here? It's certainly something that needs to be considered, but I had my doubts as to whether I'd be able to penetrate the wall of secrecy that Freemasons are known for. However, it turns out that wall of secrecy, well, it's not really a wall at all. How do you spell his surname? So it's spelt Donnelly, D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. Just check in. Okay. Oh, hang on. Let me say, including deceased as well, then, in case. Uh, we don't have any records of any D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y um, in our district. This is Russell Chilton, the District Grand Secretary for the District Grand Lodge of the North Island of New Zealand. He was kind enough to take the time to answer a few of my questions regarding Freemasonry and the process one would take to become a new member. You can't go to a meeting unless unless you're a Freemason. Okay. So if somebody shows interest at if someone shows interest in joining Freemasonry, they can be asked along to, let's say, a social event. So after a meeting, we would sit down, we would have dinner. Um, several lodges would actually invite people who are interested or people who are going through the process of applying. They, they would invite them to, to those dinners afterwards, or it could just could be like a, a social event, which could be open to um, wives, um, maybe families, um, and non-Masons. Uh, but that's kind of like the nice way to do it. But if you just want to get into the hard tack of it, what would happen is somebody shows interest in Freemasonry, they would contact myself or one of the individual secretaries of the lodge and say, hey, I'm interested in in, in joining Freemasonry. And generally you say, okay, let's go out and have a coffee. And you talk them through it to make sure they have the right idea about Freemasonry, that they don't think Freemasonry is you know, going to be the ticket to, you know, make, making a fortune or anything like that, just to make sure their expectations are what actually Freemasonry is and that that person that the secretary is talking to is going to be suitable for Freemasonry themselves. Yeah. Um, after that, then you would um, get them to fill in an application form um, and then there is the process of it being voted upon, et cetera, et cetera. But there is nothing that would say that somebody would be going to a meeting before they have been accepted because that would not happen. Okay. Um, and just on that, what would be, for, the, for this first step um, coffee meeting, what would be sort of the norm that someone might sort of dress quite well for that meeting? Um, I mean, I wouldn't. I, it, you know, if, if I'm saying to somebody, let's, let's meet up for coffee, I wouldn't dress up. I, so I wouldn't expect them to dress up smartly. Yeah, I'd just be going like, no, let's just meet up, have a cup of coffee. You know, I've done it plenty of times, and I normally say, you know, you normally get a little bit of background information about them. And um, if they, you know, I'd say, you know, are you married? You got any kids, etc., that kind of thing. Um, you know, and I would say, well, 
by all means, bring bring your wife along. Yeah. Because she will probably have questions. If you're going to be intending to join Freemasonry, you will be going out in the evening. Um, you know, maybe your wife would like to meet me and ask any questions. And, you know, certainly some lodges are very happy for wives to come along um, to the meal after the meetings. Yeah. So, you know, Eden Lodge is now. Eden Lodge probably wasn't back in 2004. Freemasonry has evolved quite a bit in the last 20 years where we are now trying to be much more open. Um, and that's why I personally always say, bring your wife along. Yeah. But back in those days, maybe not so much. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, that question may well have been asked and he's, he would have then obviously answered honestly and said, actually, no, my wife um, isn't particularly happy. But then again, I can only tell you what I would say if, if I was sitting down having coffee and I say, Oh, so tell me about, about your wife. Oh, she's not really into Freemasonry. I would then be saying to him, why do you want to join Freemasonry if your wife's against it then? Mm. What's the point of coming to Freemasonry? And then you're going to go home in the evening and you're going to have an argument with your wife because she doesn't like Freemasonry. Yeah. Like I would be telling somebody or inferring to them that really is it worth having a bit of an aggravated marriage if, you know, because your wife is so dead against it, it could well be that she's got, you know, religious reasons because, um, it, you know, there are, there are some religions who are dead against Freemasonry. Catholics always have been, yeah. um, unfortunately. Um, it's, it's historically the, the Catholic faith is against Freemasonry. So if she was a dedicated Catholic, she could be dead against Freemasonry. And I'd be saying, well, you know, why don't you bring your wife along? Maybe I can talk to her. Maybe I can dispel whatever, you know, misconceptions she's got about Freemasonry. But at the end of the day, this is going to cause him, you, anybody, grief when you go home. You really got to ask yourself, is it really that important to join Freemasonry when your wife is that against it? Let's quickly recap what Russell has just said. Firstly, and most importantly, Jim's name is not in their database as having ever been an official member. Basically, in a nutshell, this means that Jim couldn't have been attending any official Freemason meeting of the English denomination, as only members can attend. We know from Stephen that Jim had been to one of these open nights that Russell has described. I spoke to Stephen again recently, just to double-check exactly what this had entailed, and he said that Jim and Stephen, with Stephen's father Colin, had attended one of these open night evenings where Jim had shown interest in joining. To be clear, this open night was at the Panmuir New Zealand Denomination Freemason Lodge. There are multiple different denominations, English, Scottish, Irish and New Zealand. Stephen said that Jim believed that joining the Freemasons could be a way to help him in his career, to network better, and make some progress up the ladder at NZ Steel, something which Jim had struggled to make headway on in his nearly 20 years at the mill. Finally, although he admits times have changed some, Russell does make clear that their position would not be to support, or at least to try and dissuade someone from applying if this was likely to cause trouble at home. 
and his last comments regarding Catholicism and its anti-Masonary stance only highlighted the fact that Jim joining the Masons, no matter how much he wanted to, was just never going to happen. I said to Jim, if you you really needed to join something, um, if you wanted to join um, Rotary or Lions or something like that, with no sort of religious leanings, um, I would be more inclined to go along with that. Are you Catholic? Yes. Yeah, okay. And that doesn't, that's yeah. not good either. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I know that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, just, yeah I've gr- I've, I grew up with it, you know, so it was in the railways a lot. The reality is that without Tracy's 100% support, Jim joining the Freemasons was simply never going to happen. But let's jump down the rabbit hole and say, okay, what if Jim was attending a meeting on the Saturday? How long would this take? Yeah. How long would a meeting go for? Like, I mean, I know you have some things you might not want to share, but is this something that... No, it's okay. That's that's easy. Um, Meetings would generally be, the physical meetings themselves would be maybe two, two and a half hours, depending on... Depending on what's being done, if, if there's if there's what we would call work, so if somebody is entering Freemasonry, entering Freemasonry, that would be a an initiation ceremony. That would be maybe two and a half hours. Um, if there isn't one of those, then it could be an hour. But then afterwards, most people would then you know retire and they would be going um, and having a meal. So then the meal could last another hour, hour and a half, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So when, what day did you say he actually, he he dressed up and he went missing for a, what, for a couple of hours? What day was that? Yeah. So that was on the set. So that was on the Saturday. Um, No, no, he, he, okay. So definitely hasn't gone to a meeting because he has not been, initiated because I've just checked on my files. Okay. Um, very often the the meetings, like I said, I don't know how they handled the meetings, but after the coffee meeting, you would then have like a formal interview with the lodge. Yeah. Those are almost certainly on the lodge nights. Yeah, which would be... So that would be kind of six o'clock, but it would be on a Tuesday. It would not be on a Saturday. That lodge does not meet on a Saturday. Yeah. But so, uh, but all the lodges have different days they meet, I'm guessing. Yes. But it's unusual to have Saturdays. Yeah. And if you think about it, the reason why Saturdays are quite unusual is that most people want to be with their families and their wives on a Saturday. Mm. Yeah, of course. So that's yeah. why generally our meetings are during the week. I mean, there are exceptions. There are ones... Um, who, who do meet, um, but very often they'll be the ones who will then have a meal which will include their wives because it's the weekend and we want to include the wives for this, you see. So it's just, it's not adding up to me mm, at yeah. all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Not adding up at all. And it certainly doesn't seem to be. So then, what was Jim doing out in this area? Twice in two days. I decided to head out to Dominion Road and just get a feeling for the location myself. Right, I'm coming around to it now. Get out onto this road. The destination is on your right. Okay, I recognise from here. Okay, I can see the D72 building coming up in front of me. And that was Stephen's old work. Let's see if I can find a spot to pull over here. What is it with me? Every time I go out in the field, I seem to bring the bad weather with me. Okay, hopefully I don't get out here and get hit by a car. Um, So just to give you an idea of um, this area, you can hear probably in the background how busy it is. It's a busy place. The D72 building is kind of an iconic building. It's got a big sort of, the sides of it are, it kind of reminds me of, uh, almost like a blimp or something, but it's made of interlocked metal pieces. I'm just walking along the front of it now, so Dominion Road in New Zealand is actually quite a, famous road thanks to Don McGlashan he wrote a song about it but it's quite a a busy road and a well known road in New Zealand in terms of the area I mean of course things will have changed from then to now I mean that's obvious but the area is just a commercial area um there's nothing that stands out about this, about this spot. Now I'm going to walk around the back of the building and see if I can find the car park where Jim was trespassed. I make my way through the large, industrial, but artistically beautiful D72 building and spot a car park area out the back. 
Uh, is that a car park over here? Okay, so around the back. God, I'm getting soaked. Around the back here. What can we see? Okay, I think I found where the car park entry is, but it's closed at the moment. So I guess this is the spot. Yeah, it's okay here. Yeah, I can see inside there is the car park, and I don't know, but I can just assume that it's still the same as it was those years ago. Um, just to be clear, we're not talking about a huge parking building. We're just talking about a very basic, a very basic car park which I'm not sure how many cars it holds but you know maybe only holds 30 or 40 cars you know other than that there's not really much to see here um, the interesting thing is to get here you have to come sort of down a side street um, down a side street and then around the back to get to this spot um, it's not like it's just on it's not like it's just at the front on Dominion Road you have to go actually right round the back of the building which in itself is kind of interesting <clears throat> I make my way back round the front of the building to my car and decide out of interest to make my way down the road and look for the Eden Lodge. Uh, yeah, just... Just trying to look around the area and just... understand what it could have been that brought Jim here. Um, you know, the mystery of the whole thing. This meeting that he supposedly went to, we could only assume that it had to be in this area we know that there's an hour of time he's unaccounted for and an hour is you know, obviously a lot of time he could have moved somewhere else and come here but I think we'd have to just say the most likely scenario is that you know he, he was in this area and fact that he was precisely in the same area when he bought the Chinese and he went to Stephen's work which was you know right next door is very interesting it's interesting this is actually I don't really know but it kind of seems like it's a bit like a Chinatown sort of an area it, it predominantly the stores are Korean in Asian I, I don't know if it's always been that way but it certainly is now very much like a Chinatown I remember some of this from Google Maps ah, okay I just drove right past it I'm probably illegally parked so let's make this quick um, so uh, even though it's 1,300 metres 
down the road, which seems quite close. When you're actually here, you're, um, it seems further than that. Okay, right now I'm standing outside the Freemasons Hall of the Eden Lodge. The thing is, I'm pretty sure, and I'm gonna find it out when I punch in the directions, but if it had been here, or somewhere here near the Masons where Jim came that day, I'm pretty sure that the direction for him to have gotten home is back past Stephen's work, and past the Chinese store. That would be the direction he'd be going back. So for him to stop there, I mean, it could make a lot of sense. But as we know in this case, nothing really makes any sense. Right, I'm gonna brave this weather. And um, yeah, now it's time to, to do this run and see how long it takes. Is it possible that the location Jim visited was somewhere further down the road in this direction? And Jim simply stopped on his way back past Stephen's work and the Chinese takeaways? It's possible, but I don't believe the lodge is the answer. I jump back in the car. It's the worst possible day for it. But I want to check the time it takes to drive from here to Jim's old house and see if the timeline truly does allow for a meeting. Okay, so I'm just... Uh going past the D72 building right now which is you know the place uh, Jim was in the car park and I've just punched it into Google Maps and as you can probably hear the rain is pouring down it's also a Friday of a long weekend so wow this is torrential rain um, you couldn't get worse traffic conditions than now I really have picked the worst day for this torrential rain that would only an hour after my departure cause severe flooding, multiple deaths and a state of emergency in the Auckland region, plus an Elton John concert which was cancelled last minute. But nonetheless, I make my way through traffic and I'm a bit surprised I actually make decent time. I'm just pulling into the street where Jim lived at the time and it's taken me 35 minutes today and I said that traffic is not ideal today. Um, turns out there's an Elton John concert on as well and it's raining, it's a Friday afternoon. Um, so I'm comfortable that in normal conditions you could chop five minutes off that, maybe more. Um, and the reality is we know that Jim was making that trip in half an hour because we know he bought his Chinese at 7.27. He was then home by 8 o'clock. So the time stands that it takes me around half an hour today and it took him half an hour then. So, you know, I'm comfortable that I've come out here and shown that it can be driven in that time and we know that Jim did drive it in that time. Um, but it's still just good to have that. That ticked off, it answers nothing, but it does just tell us that, you know, he had time to do something that day, and I believe he did do something. 
You know, it was the same time frame both times. After he left home, he was seen an hour and a half later both times. But we don't know what he was doing for that first hour and a half. As usual, only questions, no answers. The difficulty with investigating this part of the case is that many Freemasons tend to be older. And as almost 20 years have elapsed, many have since passed. But one thing is for sure, and that's that Jim's name doesn't appear on the Freemason database as having ever been a member of this lodge, or as far as I'm aware, any other. Of course, you can jump down the rabbit hole of cover-ups and conspiracy and say his name could have been removed from the database, etc., etc., but with no evidence to support anything like this, it's just not the type of thing that I'm going to entertain. And despite what many people think, Freemasons aren't a secret, nefarious organisation that control the world. They're a worldwide collection of lodges of predominantly men that meet weekly with the stated goal of trying to become better men. Speaking to Jim's best friend, Stephen Taylor, about what Jim's motivations might have been to join the Freemasons, Stephen believes that Jim may have seen this as a way to better network within NZ Steel and possibly help him progress further through the ranks. I found this interesting. The question is, is there a Freemason presence at NZ Steel? Would Jim becoming a Mason actually make a difference? I managed to speak to a former NZ Steel employee who just so happens to have first-hand knowledge of both Freemasonry in general and also its presence at the mill. I'm unable to use his name in the podcast for his own privacy, but this is what he told me. Look, the main reason why Freemasons look for family-type men is because of the simple fact that if you've got a wife or a fiancé and you've got a couple children then I know you're probably reasonably dependable. And if you're a young man with a promising career, you know, they look for that whole package. And Jim would have been an absolutely prime candidate. He's got two kids, he's got a wife, good job, fantastic job. He ticks every box you can think of. And if you're asking if there's a mason presence at the mill, there's most definitely a heavy presence of it, especially amongst your officers and senior management. Yeah, I mean... It's always been that way since they first began. It's always been those people that look after each other. And if Jim thought this might be a way for him to move up a couple rungs at work, then it most definitely is. Because you're saying you agree with the order of things, if you know what I mean. You know, we sort of have that bond between you and I as brothers. And I might be your senior manager and you would know in your heart, although you'd never ever speak about it, that probably the next promotion you'll be getting because we look after our brothers and at the same time you know you'd have their back it's a great system great system and for a man that doesn't feel like he's getting anywhere it makes sense i can't verify 100 percent that there is a large mason presence at the mill and they're not about to shout it from the rooftops so we'll have to take him on his word here but i don't think it's a great stretch by any means I spoke to Stephen Taylor's mother, Shirley, who described Jim as becoming almost like another child of theirs. Shirley, through her husband Colin, 
has a lifelong understanding of Freemasonry and what it means. It was Shirley that Jim had picked up the application from that day. I asked her about that. Jim's sudden change of heart and the idea that Jim joining the mill could help him advance at work. Earlier on, him and Stephen had been to a um, a meeting with Colin about if they wanted to join. They had an open meeting with just um, information available, and Stephen and Jim went. Yeah. And he, the only time I remember him talking to me about it was that last weekend, really. Yeah. Or around about that time, and he came and Colin wasn't home, and I said to him, the the guy that was master when Colin was the chief warden or junior warden, I've forgotten what they call them all now, um, he was a lovely man and very approachable. And I said to Jim, in fact, I gave him his phone number. I said, your best bet would be to go and see him. His name was Noel Smith, but unfortunately, he died about hmm, eight, nine months ago. So you can't speak to him. Okay. Um, So I don't even know. I'm quite sure if Jim had phoned him, Seen him, I'm sure Noel would have rung up us and talked to us about it. Okay. But he didn't, so I don't think Jim actually did contact him. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it's, it certainly seems, um, you know, on the Wednesday, it's, you know, that was the day that he, um, picked up the application and he even said to Tracy on the Wednesday, he wanted to meet up with her and have a chat because it was very important. He was wanting to join the Masons. And then he picks up the application from you. And then the very next morning he calls Colin and says, no, I, I don't think I can join now. Um, and yeah, to me, it's a sort of, it's interesting to think why he had this sudden change. Yes. I, I do actually, now you're saying that, I do remember him, him saying that. And I, he didn't, Tracy didn't want him to join. Yeah. Just said to Stephen, it was around about that same time or just earlier than that, that he was thinking of going to work and getting a job in Australia. Oh, okay. And um, Tracy didn't want to move to Australia because her mum was here and she didn't want to move and the children, of course. Do you think... um did he? I've spoken to someone at the mill who said that there is a bit of a Mason presence out there, and it's possible maybe Jim might have seen joining the Freemasons as a way to kind of get ahead at work. Well, that's if if there is, I'm not aware of that. But if there is, he could well have thought that was a good idea. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So that would be a thing that you know. I mean. Masons kind of look after each other a little bit or they'll help each other out in certain situations. Yes. Did you used to talk to Jim a fair bit? Yes. When Stephen went um, to Australia to live, Jim used to come around here quite a lot. I think he thought he was keeping an eye on us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
he was a lovely young man, and um, he brought Tracy around to meet her. Yeah. And they they've been you know, we were we had a boat we used to go sailing a lot and, and he him and Tracy used to come out with us until eventually I think he got his own boat, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, they did buy a boat at some point there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, we knew Jim pretty well from school days. Yeah, yeah, well, so I guess. He, he, he was almost like another one of the family. Yeah. I mean, Stephen and Jim were sort of best friends for a long, long time. They were. They had a very healthy relationship, really. They were great friends and they were great. Um, they used to push each other, I think. Mm. To, one wanted to be ducks of the school and so they both wanted to be. <laughs> and um, that just didn't alternate, I think. One year it was Stephen, one year it was Jim. <laughs> yeah. um, it must have been quite hard on Stephen when Jim disappeared. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah, and and for you guys as well? Mm, terrible. If you came into this episode looking for answers about this meeting, then sorry, but we didn't get that. You're probably leaving with more questions than before. Whether Jim actually attended a meeting, Masons or otherwise, we'll probably never know. But I think the idea of why Jim wanted to join the Freemasons in the first place could be more important. And for me, Shirley has added that reinforcement that Masons do look out for each other. And if there is a presence at the mill, it's quite reasonable that Jim may have seen him becoming a member as something which could advance his career. Shirley mentioned Jim's desire to move to Australia and work, which I found particularly interesting in this context. I've confirmed with Tracy that yes, Jim had been looking at a particular company, BHP, which focuses on steel and other resources, in the months prior to his disappearance, but hadn't applied. And we know from Tracy's earlier interview that she wasn't interested in moving out of Auckland, so it wasn't an option. But she also added that Jim's mother had become unwell, so this may have also played a factor. I find these two points quite telling. They appear to show a person that was not content in his job. Jim's first attempt to fix this situation was to try and find a new workplace, to get a fresh start. And when this was denied to him, he seems to have decided that joining the Freemasons might be the solution. He appears to have been a man desperately trying to improve his situation. So it begs the question, what were these problems? Was Jim unhappy in his job? And if so, why? And how could these questions tie in to the overall mystery of the disappearance of Jim? In my quest to solve this mystery, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people. I've chased down every person that saw Jim that final morning he disappeared. Bar one. The third to last person to see Jim alive. I'd spent months looking and had almost given up. Until recently, my email lit up. Good evening, Ryan. 
I was a team leader in the rolling mill and possibly one of the last to see Jim alive. In the many years since, I've asked myself many questions about this last sighting. That man is Stephen Morris. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. You'll find further photos and videos related to this podcast on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. You can discuss the case with other listeners on our Facebook group, the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. If you want to support this podcast and help make more great content, plus get an ad-free listening experience and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. Or for non-Apple listeners, you can now subscribe on Acast Plus. You'll find the link in the description of this episode. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. And um, there was Jim coming up the stairs. And I always remember he he looked uh, dishevelled. He looked um, just for that split second. That's uh, he, uh, on reflection. He um, he looked like you know when you are just about to do something and then you remember something and you're like you're going to walk back backwards. It was like he almost didn't want to didn't want me to see him. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.